Welcome to Three Song Stories, the podcast that creates biographical castles using songs and the musical memory blocks they bring out of our guests. Thanks for listening. I'm Mike Canary. My guest today is Thomas Allen Harris. He's a many-media artist who explores family and identity in what he calls a participatory model of filmmaking that he's been pioneering for nearly three decades now. He's an accomplished filmmaker and public television producer. His documentary, Through a Lens Darkly, premiered on Independent Lens on PBS a few years ago and was nominated for a National Emmy. Thomas was born in the Bronx and raised in New York City and Tanzania. He's a graduate of Harvard College and the Whitney Museum of American Arts Independent Study Program. He's made a number of other feature and short films in his life, and he lectures and teaches widely on media arts and other topics, including an upcoming course around Family Pictures USA as a senior lecturer at Yale University. And oh, by the way, he's the host and creator of Family Pictures USA that I just mentioned. It's a new public TV show that's exploring lives through the lens of the family photo album. It's actually why he's in town. He's here with a team meeting folks and scouting locations to film here in Southwest Florida later this year. So we thought we'd get him into the Three Song Stories chair while he's here. And here we are. So here we go. Hey there, Thomas. Hi. It's a pleasure to meet you. I'm glad to meet you as well. I'm glad to be here, Mike. Thank you for taking the time to do this. I know you guys have been on a crazy schedule train. Um, Can you gauge for us how much crazier this schedule train is than your normal train? Because it sounds like you do a lot of stuff. So how busy is this week versus your normal weeks? Well, we're always in production, you know, and being a transmedia artist, you're kind of always doing, you have three balls in the air at the very minimum. And so, um, uh, this is, this is it. And then I, Usually crash in the weekends <laughs> okay, or so, when I can. <laughs> so this isn't necessarily like a heightened version of your schedule. Well, what's heightened it is the wet, is the heat down oh, here. Yeah. <laughs> well, welcome to uh, yeah. It'll be nicer when you're here in the fall. Um, what got you started down the road of visual storyteller? Um, well, I think the earliest um, point uh, that I can um, kind of talk about is. Um, the fact that I was raised by my grandparents and my grandmother was – while my parents were in school, my grandmother took care of me and then my, my grandfather came home from his job. He would photograph me and, okay. um, and then later on he would tell me uh, stories because I always asked him stories and he, was, he would love to tell stories. And so he'd tell me stories about his ancestors and he was also a photographer. And so a lot of the photographs in the house were his photographs. And then I, I realized as I've been doing my films and finding more and more images that he took over of me throughout my childhood, I find more kind of um, moments that I had forgotten. And so he was really documenting my life visually in addition to downloading the um, stories of his ancestors. Hmm. Was he a professional photographer? He did not uh, work. Um, he did not get paid for his photography, but he documented his family. Gotcha. And it was not just his nuclear family. It was his extended family. So my grandmother's side of the family, he documented at every event. This was his hobby, his okay. avocation. And he also was a member of Bethel AME Church, African Methodist Episcopal Church, for um, – 
like six decades, and he photographed many of the events of the church, uh, both on uh, color slides, black and white images, as well as video and Super 8 and 16 wow. millimeter. <laughs> Sounds like you're not far from the tree, as no. they say. Um, when did you get your first camera, and what kind was it? Uh, he gave me my first camera. You know, I cannot remember the, the – um, the make of was that it a thirty-five camera. millimeter? It was a thirty-five millimeter camera, and I actually was shooting black and white. Many of the cousins that I had um, uh, were also interested in photography, and so they had they were photographers as well. And you uh, continued on then as steadily being a photographer straight through to this day. From then, no, I you know my brother has um, he's a well-known photographer and artist, Lyle Ashton Harris. Um, but I took um, some detours. Um, I during my college days, early college days, I had stopped taking photography and I became a science jock. In fact, I went. Well, to I was going to bring up the fact that you were a biology major. At Harvard, I was like, okay, that fits perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) I was on my way to medical school. I went to Bronx High School of Science. Okay, okay. I I had lived in East Africa for a while. When I was about 11, my mom moved with me and my brother to East Africa, and I went to uh, national schools there. So when I came back, I wasn't as comfortable with English. And what translated really easily was the science and the math. And so – and my mom was a chemist. And so I grew up in the lab partially um, whenever I went to her with her to work. You know, it was a chemistry lab, you know, and she she was a teacher. And so I was very comfortable with that, you know, the Bunsen burners and, you know, just the ke- smell of chemicals because she always, you know, when she come back home, she would – after you spend eight hours in the lab, you come back home yeah, and smell chemicals. Yeah, imbued with it. Yeah, so I felt very comfortable with, with chemistry, biology, you know, physics as well. And so um, I did that in, 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 in high school and I thought, well, maybe what I should do is become – I'm a doctor. And it was sometime during my years in college I realized I don't like blood or flesh. (laughs) (laughs) All the key ingredients to that life, right? Exactly. (laughs) So then how did you wind up back into the world of visual storytelling? Because if I do the math right, you got started in that around that same time. Yes, yes. I decided to take a couple of photography courses. I had gone in my junior year to Europe uh, for three weeks to visit a friend. And I just, you know, I've met all these different people who said, you know, follow your dream, follow your passion. You know, it was in Paris, actually. Right. So that's a perfect, perfect place, place to go. Perfect place to start a passion play. <laughs> exactly. Right? And so I came back and I said, I'm not going to go for like a master thesis, you know, or a thesis rather. Um, I, instead, I will, um, I will take some uh, electives in photography and creative writing. And so I did that and it just, it opened up. Door for me, and and I, in, in, in fact, wrote a grant, uh, my first grant that was successful, and my first grant period to go back to Europe and um, got a grant. I uh, became a Henry S. Shaw traveling traveling fellow, and I went back to France and also to Holland and also to Italy, and was working as a photographer and a, a stylist in fashion as well, and uh, just kind of basically trying to figure out how not to come back and apply to medical school because I'd taken my MCATs and I'd yeah, done yeah. well. You were okay, so you were on the cusp. Yeah, I was on the cusp. Gotcha. What uh, what kind of camera were you carrying when you were on that trip? Uh, Nikon's. Nikon's. Yeah. Still still shooting film at that point. Yes, I was shooting film. Gotcha. Do you still shoot film. film at all today? Um, I I, you know, I want to start shooting film. Um, I shoot uh, some moving film, okay. you know, but I haven't shot um, 
film still uh, using my still camera in a number of years. I can't remember when last. It's probably it might be it might be like a decade and a half, two decades. Um, but it's something I do want to start doing as well. I, I recently printed the photograph that I had taken in 1980, I guess it was 87, mm-hmm. uh, on the front steps of the Riverside Church. It was as uh, Toni Morrison and Maya Angelou and Amiri Baraka were leaving James Baldwin's funeral. And you took this picture. And I took the picture and it sold wow. recently at an wow. auction. Wow. <laughs> and, um, and it was, uh, you know, so I was, I thought, you know, so it's, Started me opening my archives from that period, and seeing you know all the being greeted by you know these memories and these images, and so I'm m- more interested in moving forward as a photographer, in addition to you know professionally, in, as in addition to all the other hats I wear. <laughs> um, so, what was the musical background of your childhood? Um, growing up with your grandparents, what was being played around you? What were you being exposed to? What can you remember if you dig back as far? as you can. Well, you know, Mahalia Jackson was someone that was played um, on in my grandmother's house, and that was the house I would come to after school. You know, it was it was a, it felt a little bit old and stodgy, and you know, very like deeply religious, and you know, and I you know, it's it's music that comforts me today. It's it, you know, it was on my list, but it actually didn't. I end up making, making the list. You got to be pretty hard on yourself with the with the culling of the list. I know. Yes. <laughs> um, so um, it's also it's like what's on and what's off, right? Uh, the list, and so um, so that was something. My grandmother, she they played religious music. There there was no dancing in my grandparents' house. It wasn't forbidden, but it was there was you know it was there wasn't music to dance there, and unless the TV was on. Um, did you ever play music? Did you ever be I tr- in a band? Or, or I tried to. I tried to play the clarinet, which is something my grandfather that tried played. in past tense? Yeah. Okay. I tried for about a year, maybe less. I actually used my grandfather's clarinet. And so nothing in the modern <laughs> times. I'm tone deaf. You want to hear me sing? <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> no, 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 no. You don't. That was a rhetorical question. Can you, uh, can you remember the first time that music moved you, uh, whether it be sort of emotionally or you know physiologically, that you had Something that something about music that made you go, hmm. Yeah, all that great music, Motown, all the music of the late '60s and the '70s was just—I mean, it was thrilling. You know, it talked about social movements, it talked about love, it talked about caring, all kinds of different loves. It talked about friendship, it talked about betrayal. It was like the music, the drama, you know, and and a lot of that music was also in some of those black exploitation films mm-hmm. around the time, mm-hmm. you know, um, including the one that you know the, the first film um, of uh, that. Sparked that movement, um, Sweet Sweetbacks, um, Badass Song by Melvin Van Peebles, and then, you know, Shaft. And, you know, those soundtracks were like amazing. In fact, they were the things that, that made the movies. Right. In addition yeah, yeah. to the oh, fashion. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, as somebody who makes, uh, you know, movies, and then there's like you just said, the sound kind of makes the movie or the music makes the movie. How much do you think that changes the way you think about music and its effect on things? Like when you're putting together your documentaries, you have to think about the music. Yeah. Does that branch out into how you perceive music and where it fits into popular culture and where it fits into people's histories? Yeah, I do a lot of research around music and also I collaborate with um, uh, uh, 
principally the a musician I do collaborate with for the last 25, have collaborated with for the last 25 years has been Vernon Reed, who's a founder of the Black Rock Coalition and um, he's, you know, the, the guitarist in uh, Living Color. And he actually has scored um, my last four feature films, feature documentary, kind of mythopoetic films, as well as some of the short ones. Uh, and um, and so we actually have a, a really intense uh, intellectual conversation about sound, music, image. He's also a photographer, and uh, we're talking to him about doing some of the scoring for, the principal scoring for uh, Family Pictures USA. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm one degree separated from him now. <laughs> um, okay, well, let's move on to your first song. Uh, and uh, what is it? Why did you choose it? And do you want to tell a story before or after we hear it? Um, I um, the first song is "Lean on Me" mm-hmm. by um, the amazing um, singer, a musician, Bill Withers, and. Um, I could talk about it afterwards. Okay, perfect. Uh, We're going to hear it now. This is Lean On Me by Bill Withers from his 1972 album, Still Bill. This is Three Song Stories. So uh, where and when and perhaps to whom does that song bring you back to? Well, you saw me crying throughout the song. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, welcome to music's power of connection to our pasts. Yeah, it's 1972, and I forgot the date, you know, and it just made me realize, you know, I think my parents had, uh, the year before, they had um, officially separated, moving towards divorce. Um, And um, on the one hand, on the other hand, um, we we were part of an extended family. Um, We lived just two and a half blocks away from my, three blocks from my grandparents and his brother, uh, my Uncle Philip, and... um, and his kids were also kind of like, um, even though they were second cousins, they were like siblings. Mm-hmm. And um, my oldest cousin Ricky died the year before, in 1971, and um, and he was really just—he was a photographer. He took iconic photographs of both me and my brother that we still use in our work. In fact, I used that one of his photographs in my film *Through a Lens Darkly*. And the the song. You know, for me, it, you know, I guess this, you know, just, I mean, it felt like, you know, I didn't have a great relationship with my father. I didn't really feel like I could count on him. But, you know, I did have an amazing relationship with, um, with, you know, Ricky and also with my grandfather. You know, my grandfather is in some ways like my dad and he, he was my mother's father. But, um, but with my older cousin Ricky, I mean, he was really, um, he was an, a magical person, very special. He was, you know, also the head of the camp that I would go to, Minnesink. And, and, um, it was a tragic, tragedy, you know, him getting killed in a car accident on his way back from uh, uh, working at the camp with a friend of his. Uh, they both were killed, both young men in their early 20s. And it was the first time I encountered grief. And, you know, I did feel like if there was someone I could count on, it was him, you know, and um, as an older brother, because I was the oldest sibling uh, in the house, my house. And and um, and so, um, and a desire to like, you know, just to have, um, you know, to have like that, Fraternity, that brotherhood, that um, the connection, and um, 
And so that that's what came to mind. And um, it was also about a certain type of vulnerability as a, as, a, as a man to say, you know, I'm there for you, you know, if you need a friend. And, you know, it's something that's really sorely, I feel like, missing today, you know, that kind of spirit of generosity. And, um, and you know, speaking of spirit, you know, my mother stopped going to church after she and my dad got married. And but, you know, my grandparents would take me to church. But, you know, the music that she played in her house were what well, a lot of the music was, um, um, you know, even though it was more cultural, cultural and popular music, it had its roots in the African-American church, you know. And, um, and so there was those messages that can't come out, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that, that message that, you know, that if you need a friend, you can call on me, you can count on me and, you know, I'll be there, you know, and I'm pledging that to you. It's like something, it almost feels like ancient, like, yeah. you know, bond, yeah. you know. Uh, yesterday we had someone who was, um, uh, uh, Woody Hansen was talking about the bond between his grandfather and this Native American um, medicine man and how the, how strong the word, the bond of the word, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that that for me was just so touching, you know, and that's deeply spiritual. You know, that song um, has percolated far and wide through our culture, um, so I'm sure it comes across your ears occasionally. Mm-hmm. Does it affect you like it affected you during this, or is it because we're here very mindfully listening to it that it connected you that deeply? Yeah, it's, it's a combination. I think it's very mindful um, listening to it now, um, but also the year and understanding when it hit mm-hmm. you know, and why I was so attracted to it. Then I would sing, this, I would sing this, the, the words you know, yeah. at one point. And also recently there was a film about four or five years ago by a friend of mine, Damani Bank, a Baker, a filmmaker who made a film about Bill Withers. Oh, oh. And, um, and so I was a champion of that film. And, I, you know, I, um, and so, was, yeah, so yeah, I think it's, it might be on Netflix. I believe it's on Netflix. What's it called? It's called, I think it's called Bill Withers okay. something or another. Yeah. I'll watch it tonight. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, and by the way, you know who's on the list to do this show? Who? Woody Hansen. Oh, great. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm working on uh, it. T- tell me. Let, let me know what the, what the link is. I'll definitely I, I will. Um, so as a filmmaker, I'm going to get into this world now. Um, can you reflect on the way that the festival circuit has changed in the last decade or so because of technology and putting good equipment in the hands of more people? And digital distribution makes it easier to submit films from all over the world. And I, I know this because I help the Fort Myers Film Festival run on the technical end of things. Oh. And I've seen this arc over the last 10 years. Uh-huh. Now, for somebody who's so much further into this industry, can you reflect on what's gone on in the last decade? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's, oh, it's, it's been, you know, the be- best of times and the worst of times. There's like so much stuff, you know, it's almost like a glut of yeah. you know, stuff. But at the same time, there's access to people who, you know, stories uh-huh. and perspectives that we normally wouldn't get. We've shown several short films from people in Iran that had to sneak it to us. Wow. Yeah. You wow. Know? See, that's just amazing to have that created audience, you know. Yeah. I mean, through the film festivals, I've created audiences in Toronto where I have premiered my uh, three of my films in Rio de Janeiro, where I've premiered at least two, if not three of my films. In uh, Berlin, same thing. Um, also, um, Japan, Australia, 
um, Cape Town. I mean, it's just it's it's the you know the film festivals are these amazing cultural hubs, and relationships are forged and for, formed and forged there, and they continue. And um, and so um, you know, my only regret is I didn't go to every single film festival I was <laughs> ever accepted to because it's um, I, I you know I just know that I missed the opportunities. But you know, they, it was for I'm sure good reasons or whether or not they were good. But right. yeah. I, can you remember the first time that you were interviewed because of your work, because of something you had created that got the attention of somebody who wanted to interview you for a publication? Yeah, I think it was back in the late 80s. I was interviewed for a film I did, Crisis, Who Will Do Science. Um, it was a film I did for public television. And um, oh, that, and so the, I was interviewed by the Black Filmmaker Foundation um, uh, Journal, and they interviewed me about my early work. Um, but there was also another article that came even before that. Um, uh, when I first came back from Europe, I made a film that was funded by the Phillips Brooks volunteer house at Harvard about uh, 10 young Harvard students who move into a low-income housing project in, in Boston and uh, run a, a youth enrichment program. And I lived with them and made a film about, about mm, them. Wow. And so I was interviewed for that project as well. Can you remember the first time that you um, found out that a work of yours was going to be distributed further than you know, a screening somewhere you know, into – distribution on a network like PBS or Sundance Channel. I guess that came later probably. Yeah. Well, I but actually, what that felt like when you suddenly realized it wasn't going to just be the people you could hand it to, but the mm -hmm. people who could connect to it using other means. Yeah. Thank you for that question. Um, well, besides that first film I made you know, about the, the, the Harvard students in, in the housing project, I, I at, right after that, I was hired by uh, television. Um, I got some jobs in television. So I started making immediately working in, in um, television production and as uh, eventually as associate producer and then a, as a producer. So a lot of my that early work was more traditional work that was broadcast by WNET, by WNYC. And then uh, after about three or four years, five, six years maybe, I can't remember, like it's, from, it's a 80, maybe 88 to 91, 88. Nine, ninety, ninety-one. So about four years, four plus years. Um, I um, I then left and went to the Whitney Independent Study Program and started making. Even before I did that, I started making more experimental films mm -hmm. and films that might be a, a little bit more um, um, you know, nuanced and focused on identity, you know, both racial and uh, sexual orientation identity and and uh, uh, multi um, national identities. So, um, so I started breaking up with the form a little bit. How much success did you have to have as a filmmaker before you finally went, thank goodness I didn't go to medical school? Well, I went to see my dentist two weeks ago. I told him I was, <laughs> I told him I was pre-med. And he said, you almost went to medical school. And then he tells everyone in the office, he almost went to medical school. Like, I was like, hey, can you believe this guy? So you're guy? still waiting for that moment is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't know. I mean, it's like, you know, I, I have a lot of friends who did go to medical school and, you know, I, I I'm happy for them. Um, I, you know, it's, it, being an independent is, has its, has its, has its ups and downs. You know, as as any creative field, um, and challenges, I should say, not so much as ups and downs, but um, but I've you know, I'm so grateful for the life I've chosen. Um, back to the musical train in the memories. Um, what was the first music you owned yourself? 
Maybe James Brown or – It would have been a, a, a record? It was a 45. 45? Yeah, either James Brown and or um, Jackson 5, something along those lines. Did you ever make mixtapes? No. No, that never crossed was, your path. No, I mean, I grew up in the Bronx, so I should have. Like, you know, I was part of the hip hop generation, the original, you know, but I wasn't, I didn't, I, yeah, I, I'm not sure why, you know, I had just come yeah, back. It seems like it might be kind of your, you know, up your alley in yeah, a way. Yeah, I, I met Start, actually. Thanks for the, okay. the tip. <laughs> I, you know, I've been thinking about it because I think it's something I do, I mean, I do make mixtapes for my films because I do use, like, I have a composer I work with, but a lot of times Vernon will give me kind of, um, um, uh, uh, the, not the song plus the, um, the stems. And so I will re kind of, and I also work with, Jason Moran, I will, and I've composed stuff, you know, with them willingly or not. Right. <laughs> and so, and then I also sample music. And I do a lot of sampling, and then I, um, my voice is in a lot of my fil- my films, and then other voices. So I'll sample and, and I create interesting kind of um, uh, soundscapes with this in this way. But you never put together a list of songs in a such a way that you wanted somebody else to know how cool you were or how musically diverse you were or whatever. No, but I, I think you know, I, I mean I, always, I have a fantasy of being doing some um you know kind of being a musician um you know I think uh, you know somehow uh, some way maybe through uh, um Apple Music or iMusic. <laughs> um what is your favorite concert experience? Um, I would have to say it's either Joan Joan Armatrading. Oh, she's come up on this show in the past. Or Tracy, Tracy Chapman. Oh, cool. Yeah, one of those two. I oh, I'd love jo- to see Tracy Chapman, man. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think I saw Joan when I was living in Europe. Wow. Yeah, it might have been even been Italy or maybe it was France. I can't remember, but it was, well, those two were pretty awesome. Do you see a lot of music and have you ever traveled for music? And if so, what was the furthest you ever traveled? Um, I have, you know, I have, I haven't really traveled for music. I, you know, I, of course, I'll get off the show and, you know, and of course, come up with a bunch of different examples having traveled for music. But I, nothing comes to mind right now. Um, I do so much traveling for like uh, film and art uh, that I, you know, that's principally, you know, my travel schedule. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. Let's move on to song number two. Okay, so some of the elements of that I used to um, describe uh, of the uh, Bill Withers' "Lean on Me" are probably applicable to um, Aretha Franklin, um, and uh, the song is um, "Say a Little Prayer for Me," um, realizing how much um, you know a certain type of Christian music or. Um, Ideas, even though um, they were coming through popular music, infiltrated into our house and um, when I was growing up. And this, this is the, the, these two songs were very popular before I was um, before I was eleven, before I left the country. So this is uh, um, I say a little prayer by Aretha Franklin from her 1968 album Aretha Now. This is three song stories. So about how old would you have been when you're remembering back to listening to this with your family? Um, well, it came out when I was six years old. But, um, but you know, um, that album was playing a long time ago. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, did you all, can you remember remembering it as a love song or you just know, as kind of – because, you know, it's very 
love song. Yeah, I was just <laughs> writing that down, and it was, um, it was, it was. Yeah, I, I, I was thinking, wow, this is a song that my mother must have like you know loved a lot, you know. Um, and I don't know necessarily. I mean, it certainly informed uh, ideas around romantic love, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and uh, but also connecting it to kind of spiritual right, yeah, you know, that's... connection. And maybe as a kid, you know, I didn't, I, I didn't necessarily identify it as a romantic song, mm-hmm. you know. But I, I probably um, it was um, just about kind of like a sense of 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 love and spirituality, which was something that was you know really intense in um, in my in my um, on my mother's side, particularly. Um, and um, of the family and having grown up in a church and, you know, and also um, um, really, you know, my, my grandparents and my mom had an open door to the house. Um, so we had, you know, in my grandfather's photographic archives, there's so many people I don't even know their names of. And you know, we had lots of cousins who were not tied to us biologically. And um, and so I think that there was this, um, you know, sense of... Um, yeah, just this uh, sense of this uh, abundance of of love, and uh, and that was wealth in our family, and so I think I, I I resonated with that in terms of the song. Is Aretha Franklin something that's in your playlist today? And let's try to figure out what is your playlist today, and how do you manage it? Do you listen to Spotify? Do you have MP3s on your phone? Where, where are you at yeah. with that? I do, yeah, I do, I do it all. I mean, I have, um, um, you know, a bunch of music on my phone. I listen to Pandora. My brother's been trying to get me to sp- on Spotify, and I have, I haven't gotten on Spotify yet. Um, I, um, yeah, but it's uh, mostly through. Uh, I, I buy music, um, and. Um, where else do I listen to music? I will um, get music from the library. Um, is Aretha Franklin on your phone right now? Well, Aretha Franklin's actually in uh, the first uh, pilot episode of Family Pictures USA. Oh, really? Because someone actually talks about her, and someone uh, there, there was a uh, a woman whose family album included her dad, oh. uh, because um, Marsha Music, whose father was um, Joe Van Battle, had a prominent record store in the 40s and 50s in Detroit. And that's where Aretha Franklin's father, Reverend Franklin, would go and record all of his sermons. Oh, wow. Which are incredibly musical and so moving. I mean, he was from the South, immigrated North, and so this has this, you know, this fullness and this mythic uh, epicness. And um, and he also, Jovan Battle, also recorded Aretha Franklin's first songs. And so that came to us in Detroit. That's one of the things, little serendipitous things you just stumbled across, right? Exactly. But that's what happens with our project, Family Pictures USA. I mean, we it always their connections are always made. Last night there was other connections when we did our event here at WGCU, and so um, so so she is very much a part. I would I love Aretha Franklin. Nina Simone was someone who was also played in our house quite frequently. Marion McKeba. Um, and, um, you know, in addition to, to Bill Withers, I think I had that, that song, Lean on Me, as a 45. You've mentioned a couple of the artists that may have been close to the top three. Can you flesh out maybe one or two more that were on your short list? Yeah, let's see. Um, 
I thought I had a uh, uh, on my short list. Um, you know, I keep so many names in my memory, so I'm, I have to be really. <laughs> I have to keep <laughs> papers with me. So um, yeah, Mahalia Jackson, because you know, I I started listening to her again, um, and um, my cousin Ricky actually loved the song uh, "Come On Baby, Light My Fire." Is that by the Doors? Yeah, the yeah. Doors. Uh huh. And so I, that was on my short list. Um, A B C is easy as one, two, three. You know, Jackson Five. Um, uh, Hugh Masekela, um, I can't remember which song I had, but he was someone that we listened to. And there's a Calypso song, song by Harry Belafonte, um, that, that, um, that a record of which we had. And so, but I, I, I wanted to listen to those again. But initially I thought this was, uh, focusing on, you know, the songs from my childhood. Right. And so, uh, so th- that's where I was, um, spending all your mental time. Yes. <laughs> It was. Um, it, it, what was the process like? You're somebody who thinks a lot about family and connectivity and history and the way things can bring you back to history. Uh-huh. What was this project like for you, picking the songs and thinking about your life? Um, well, I I didn't I didn't really. Th- that, you know, I I just I rem- recall the 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 poetry of the words. Is where you know where I met where it went you know and um, and um, you know the um, certain inflection points like you know dancing to the Jackson Five mm-hmm. you know with my cousin Peggy or my uh, other cousins and um, uh, music that we would sit down with our little you know forty five recorder yeah, yeah, yeah. play you know independent of our parents you know their their stereo which I, I'm not sure how much access we had you know and uh, to 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 their records uh, although Stevie Wonder's songs of the key from the key of life songs mm-hmm. of the key yeah, of yeah, life yeah. was um, very something we listened to over and over and over and over again the whole summer um, so it was uh, very enjoyable yeah. It's very enjoyable. Um, when was the last time you bought music that had a physical form? Probably for one of my films. But for your own personal record use, for your own personal music use. Um, I don't. I I don't think I can't remember. It's been a long time, in yeah. other words. Yeah. So so you. There you, was one one song, I, one record I did buy, um, but it was that's also a long time ago. I mean, it's a long time ago. A couple of records I have come with books I bought. I can't remember. Yeah. Your bio says that you lecture widely on personally, personal archiving and the use of media as a tool for social change. Mm-hmm. Can you reflect on how the fact that everybody has a recording device in their pocket is affecting social change in this world? Yeah. I mean I think that people using their uh, phones as kind of activist uh, citizen journalism – you know, to record things that are that you know that that uh, normally would be pushed under the carpet. I think citizen journalism is really significant. You know, in all its different forms. I think the things that usually get the most uh, attention are you know the you know crisis, high drama uh, right. stuff. Uh, it would be great to get. Um, other kinds of stories, and that's kind of what we're doing with family pictures, you know, because I think that right now the family album, you know, as we had known it, no longer exists. And now right. it's actually in our devices, you know, our, our kind of visual record of the both of our contemporary, you know, journeys through our our lives, but also images that float float into our consciousness, you know, from the past. You yeah, know? we're in, we're bringing so much more visual information on a daily basis. Exactly. Um, 
can you think about um, you know I, I am a photographer and I shot on film before I didn't uh-huh. and I don't look back on my pictures in the same way that I used to because there's so many more of them or it's there's something about them they're more diluted. Uh-huh. Can you reflect on that too as a photographer of you know just how our connections to our photos have changed because of the ease of taking them and the the number that we may take versus before you know you go before you got to roll a film in there yeah you'll take maybe a picture of a moment mm-hmm. and either you got it or you didn't and yeah. now you can just go and yeah. then go back and go well that's the one that got the moment best yeah is that diluting something or is that expanding something or both yeah, but I, I, you know, I mean, when I take photographs on my phone, I mean, some of them have been published mm-hmm. recently, um, um, but I don't necessarily think of them as something that will be exhibited or that will really last for a long time. You know, um, I'm recently started going through, as I mentioned earlier, my um, archives from the '80s, and which were black and white, you know, um, contact sheets, and printing out the contact sheets, and you know, I mean, those images are strong, just. You know, magnifying the contact sheets, and uh, so there was a deliberateness uh, to the taking of the image, the framing. You know, the the sense of economy in terms of you know each 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 roll of film has thirty five images. I you know I cannot waste these images. I need. I'm very much aware that I need to. Um, be be judicious, 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 judicious. And there was the cost associated with making them into something you could see. Just getting the roll, yeah. Because I mean, buy, you, you, know, you could be crazy yeah. and buy a hundred yeah. rolls, but no, yeah. you, you know, you'd be crazy. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think that if you were going to use them wisely, get, you know, that, that's fine. I mean, I look at some of those contact sheets and I see. Um, like half the contact sheets are really great photographs, mm-hmm. yeah. And so, um, so I, yeah, I, I, but, 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 you know, there is a way in which you feel like the images that we take using our phones have a sense of disposableness about them, you know, and or, you know, a, a sense of immediacy, which is also tied to branding and marketing, but don't necessarily have a deeper meaning. You know, associated with them, you know, a kind of, um, uh, you know, a sanctity around them, you yeah. know, and so, um, you know, really talk about a time and a place, and so um, I would agree that it's it's you know it's it's been it's it is diluting um, the um, significance of photographic representation, but at the same time. We are leaving, you know, the cameras and the photo technology as we knew it, and not necessarily um, ensuring that it'll stay. You know, because we're not printing out images. Mm-hmm. The chances of the, that images that we took, you know, a hundred years ago, will outlast the images we took. We've taken over the last five, ten years, you know, particularly the last five years. You know, it's 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 pretty high. You know, I mean, my cell phone has died a couple of times. I've had hard drives die. You got to manage Six your months. data, though, yeah, man. exactly. No, I mean, it's it's like you know, but you can you can do you could be really on top of it, and still, I mean, the great images I took the day before might have been in part of those images that have not been, you know, did not get uploaded. I mean, I pay for things to be uploaded to the cloud now, you know, right. but who knows how long that really is going right. to last? That's a leap of faith. What about um, not to go too far down this road as a photographer? But the in the momentness 
that, you know, like I've shot weddings, right, uh-huh. for friends. Uh-huh. And then we get done and I'm like, I have no connection to that wedding because I was taking pictures of that wedding. I was one step removed. I was being a documentor. I was not being an experiencer. Uh-huh. And if everyone's walking around at Disney World with uh-huh. their phones out constantly taking pictures, are they losing the experiencer and being a documenter? Well, you know, I, I would disagree um, you know, or have a different take. I think that um, – when you're taking pictures, you become a performer. Mm-hmm. You know, you because people you're giving a certain significance to the event in the sense that you are the one through whom the transmission of information mm-hmm. flows. Yes. You know, because you it's it everyone has that experience. Well, but which you may benefit it for, them for, for more than you though. <laughs> you might be taking one for the team though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's. That's true. I mean, but I mean, it's it, uh, is this a wedding for hire or is this a wedding of a close friend? This was weddings for close friends. Is why yeah, well, different. that's service. Yeah, 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 that's true. Okay. Lean on me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you for doing that. You just you just helped me a lot psychologically. <laughs> okay, let's uh, I, uh, let's. I know you are on a limited time frame here, so let's move on to your third song. What okay. is your third song? Why did you choose it? And is the story pre or post? This. Sto- uh, this, well, I have to set it up. I, um, in, in 1974, I moved to East Africa with my mom and my younger brother, Lyle, and uh, my mom got a job teaching in the Ministry of Education in uh, Tanzania. It's in East Africa, just south of Kenya nor- and um, um, east of Uganda, and we lived there for two years, and um, and. I went to a national school, uh, which was a state school. I was the only American in the school. Every morning, the students, uh, we wore uniforms. The uniforms were white shirts and khaki pants, khaki shorts, and um, and sho- usually black shoes, I believe, and white socks. And we would line up for assembly every morning, and we would sing this song. What's it called? It's called Mungu Ibariki Africa, and it's the national anthem of Tanzania. And the translation from Kiswahili to English is "God Bless Africa." It's also the national an- national anthem for South Africa. And my stepdad, who raised me from the time I was nine years old, was a South African freedom fighter. All right, let's hear it. Take it away, DP. <laughs> Last time you listened to that? 
Um, I included a segment of that uh, song in my 2001 film, A Minha Cara, That's My Face, that I shot in Brazil, and I had a segment on Tanzania. And so I listened to it probably in the late 90s or early 2000s. You, uh, you were singing along, so it's there, it's that deep in you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, when I first started school in Tanzania, I didn't know what the words were. Right. And I didn't speak Swahili. Right, you, you remember know? it phonetically. You, and you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I, all the classes were taught in English, with the exception of uh, Swahili, which is a national language, and many of the students came from non-Swahili-speaking households, so they were speaking other kinds of languages, Bantu languages, and then also um, like uh, uh, political education, which was it was a socialist country, and so that was also ta- taught in Swahili, and so those two classes I was exempted from being an American, and um, but I, when I first started. Um, going to school there, I um, you know I was just trying to you know make my way and um, and just try to fit in and I didn't fit in at all <laughs> and so I, yeah, I I learned the language to the song ultimately and um, and uh, it was you know it was um, it was you know it was during my adolescence and um, it was a new you know newly independent country it had only been independent for eleven or twelve years and. There were all these Af- other African countries that were becoming independent in the, to the south of Tanzania, and they were they, their influence was being felt, and that was very interesting. Um, and the Tanzanians were such friendly, friendly people. You know, they were so welcoming, and um, you know, it had been a former British colony, and so I was going to an Anglican church, and then the Chinese came and became the trading partners, and the British left, and so all of the chocolates and the soaps disappeared, and hmm. we had this cheap Chinese stuff in the stores. <laughs> <laughs> what an interesting glimpse into a slice of the world. And so it was a real uh, interesting time, and um, we would go on vacation to Nairobi, Kenya, which is much more a much more of a western place and you could find a lot of the things you couldn't find in Tanzania and in Nairobi, Kenya. And so um so this song, you know, I listened to, you know, we go to school 6 days a week, I believe. Like if I my memory serves us right, Saturday was half. Seems a like day. that's not something you'd forget. <laughs> <laughs> and you I think school would start like at 7 and end at 2 or 1 or something like that because it was also very very hot. Mm-hmm. It was very hot, huge, like this, but yeah, all year yeah. round, right, right, and even hotter. Uh, go to 112. Wow. You know, so, so it was, um, and you know, and I had to get to school by myself. Um, How old were you at the time? Well, I was. It was 11, going on 12, okay. and so I would catch the bus, and it was kind of a do sink or swim situation, you know, because I, you know, I was the youngest kid in the class, and. It was, um, you know, just kind of like, you know, you just thrown in the situation. And, you know, when my mom arrived there to teach in the Ministry of Education, they thought she was a man because they couldn't imagine a woman would come with her two sons. Mm. And so we were in a cab for like four or five hours <laughs> waiting for them to reassign her from like a the university where mostly it was mostly male students. Oh, they own. had to reassign her because they had her gender wrong. Yep. Right. Yeah. And so it was really – and then we – you know, so a lot of things changed. We didn't have housing. We lived in a hotel for three months. So it was um, it was a big, big – you know, it was a, you know in the expat community there, you know. How long were you there? I was there two years. Two years. Yeah, formative years. So. What was it like coming back? Traumatic. Traumatic. Yeah. Because – 
back was trauma was trauma. Uh, well, <laughs> or just was, because you had you had then those were formative years. You had sort of built up this new person self perspective, and then suddenly you had nowhere to apply it. Yeah, Does well, I mean, sound? I had I had become a businessman in Tanzania. I was like, you know, <laughs> selling. I was making like these breads, banana breads, and cakes, and selling them to people. I'd worked in the chicken farm, and I was selling chicken. And suddenly, that was had, not relevant in the Bronx. <laughs> <laughs> I had a garden, like you know, that wow. fed their family. You know, so I had so much independence. It was like you know, and and um, and also. Um, yeah, just meeting all these new and different people and so exciting. You know, this, it was very cosmopolitan, even though it was a you know relatively small capital, and um, and it was you know, and there was also a lot of like intimacy with people. Like you know, everyone would say hello to one another mm-hmm. on the street. Everyone, you know, if you had like a, 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 a you know men who were friends and women who were friends would walk down the street holding hands. You know, and it was just like you know, and then you come back and it's like all of a sudden you're like, no, you have to be much more contained. Yeah. Especially was you came back to New York, right? Yeah. In the seventies, yeah. right? So yeah. Yeah. that was a different New York than yeah. it is today. Yeah. Yeah. Um is there a song that you will always turn off if it comes on the radio, either because of the memory that it brings up or the style of the song? A lot of songs from college. I can't. I don't even remember the titles, but they were. It was. A, it was a sad time. <laughs> sad time musically or sad time personally. Both. Yeah. <laughs> uh, things. Things started getting better when I stopped being pre med. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, and you know, another question that we've asked periodically on this show would be: um, How would your fourteen-year or fifteen-year-old self think about how you turned out? Um, you know, I think I have my previous selves pretty cl- hold them pretty close to me. So that, you know, I I think um, you know, I recently found a photograph that my grandfather had taken. It was before I was fourteen or fifteen. It was actually eleven, and I was um, um, I was at at the a church podium uh, giving a sermon at junior church, and you know, my grandparents always pushed me to do this. You know, I became the ch- the chaplain and did all the prayers from. You know, the time I was in eleventh grade to twelfth grade, you know, in New York, and and so, um, so you know, I just recently realized how much I, I, you know, my grandparents had really kind of anchored me in, in, in the church, and so, um, so um, to be doing the kind of work I'm doing now, you know, which is very much service work and, you know, about connecting people across our differences and, you know, and trying to be compassionate and non-judgmental and, and um, making work that helps people. Um, that's something that is, um, is so um, ingrained in me. And in fact, I recently saw a film and interviewed um, uh, my colleague, a filmmaker, um, who made um, Won't You Be My Neighbor?, um, oh, Mar- yeah? Morgan ne- Neville, ne- ne- Neville, and um, and uh, it's in theaters right now, right here in um, in um, in Southwest Florida, and it talked about um, you know Rogers, Jim Rogers, Fred Fred Rogers, Fred Fred yes. Rogers, and and he was a you know a um, had studied ministry, and so he mm-hmm. was in some ways a kind of TV you know TV personality, but he was also rooted in a certain type of ministry, and I, I think that you know while I'm very different. I'm not, you know, I mean, I'm not a, um, you know, I haven't studied mi- the ministry, but it's in me in such a strong way, you know, just like that song, Mungu Ibariki is in me. 
All right. I've got one more question for you. If you could collaborate with any photographer or filmmaker or producer, alive or dead, who would it be? Oh, wow. I mean, it's hard to answer that question because my work is collaborative. So I love collaborating with people. And so I, I'm always collaborating with people and, and, and helping young filmmakers um, find their voice. I'm teaching a course at Yale called Family, uh, Family Narratives, Cultural Histories, and you know, connecting people, helping the people to connect their family photographic archives to movements, whether it's a women's movement or, or you know, uh, the labor movement or the LGBT movement or, you know, with the independence movements. I, so that, that for me, I, 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 I feel like I'm, I'm doing that all the time. And In I, other I, words, everyone who wants to make the world a better place is who you want to collaborate <laughs> yes. with. But it can continue to collaborate with. <laughs> Great. Uh, all right. Well, Thomas, uh, Alan Harris, any final thoughts? Um, really grateful to be here and have this reflection. And I needed a good cry. So thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> okay. This week's parting tune comes from Joe in Portland, Oregon. My song is If I Had a Million Dollars by Bare Naked Ladies. I was working in Boston in the early 90s. And I had some friends who went to MIT, and one of them ran the radio station there. And he was from Canada. And he encouraged me to come to a couple of shows that were happening in Boston from Canadian bands. One show was the band Moxie Fruvis. They were great. They were talented. They could read and write music, play a bunch of instruments, political, smart, wit, you know, witty. And uh, the show was great, and we got to hang out with them afterwards. And coincident to that, we became friends and got to hang out with them on a number of occasions when they came down to Massachusetts. Around the same time, uh, my brother Mike emailed me and said he had discovered a new band called Moxie Brubus. And I wrote back to him and said, yeah, I just saw them the other night. They're awesome. So that always has introduced a little bit of uh, interesting uh dynamic between Mike and I over this band because he fell in love with them perhaps even more than I did and yet I was hanging out with them in bars and in houses in Massachusetts for a few years. The other band I saw at the same time was a new band or new to me, Bare Naked Ladies. Really great show and got to hang out with them too afterwards. And so we became friends with these two bands and soon thereafter or around that time Bare Naked Ladies came out with an album called Gordon, and on the song, If I Had a Million Dollars, Moxie Fruvis sang backup to the Bare Naked Ladies, bringing together these two great bands that I've listened to ever since. I always wanted to get all of them together and tried to do so many years later, but it didn't work out. Whenever I hear the song, If I Had a Million Dollars, not only do I think of that time in Massachusetts in the early 90s, and my brother and my circle of friends, but it also makes me realize that musicians are normal people, too. And every band I go to see ever since, I take that same perspective. And in fact, try to get to know people and hang out with them afterwards and that kind of thing. So it really influenced the way that I think about music and bands and performing in general. And that's my story. 
Have you got a story and a song that goes with it? If so, send it to us at mysongstory at wgcu.org. We'll get in touch with you to record it for a future episode of this podcast. We make three song stories in the studios of WGCU Public Radio on the campus of Florida Gulf Coast University in Fort Myers, Florida. Richard Chen Kui is producer, director, and co-creator. Tara Calligan is our online content producer. Chris Duffus is our executive producer. Our production intern is D.P. Workman, who also directed this episode. Our theme music was created by Dave Dave Dave, Cowan, and Stick Martin at Monkey House Studio in St. Pete. I'm Mike Canary. Keep listening. Next time on Three Song Stories. This is back when he was doing that show on like Rock of Love or whatever, Brett Michaels, and actually had a dream. I'll trust you on that. Okay. This is like, yeah, I'm secretly admitting it. Um, two or three years ago, I dreamt I was in a therapy session with him and I was trying to connect. So I took, you know, he always wears a bandana. Mm-hmm. So I actually took a bandana put it around my head to do therapy with him.